with me in your Bibles to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. This is God's Word. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and now we pray that you would open it to us and speak to us and instruct us, encouraging us and helping us through this great means of grace. Lord, we cannot understand apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as we come to the end of chapter 14, this is the end of the fourth major division in the book of Revelation. And so by way of review, that first division, the first three chapters, the introduction of the book and the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The next section, chapters four to seven, are the seven seals, followed by the third section, the seven trumpets in chapters eight to 11. And then now in this fourth section, we have seen much described about the spiritual realm throughout the church age in history. This fourth section is sometimes referred to or called the seven histories or the symbolic histories of the book of Revelation. You might not have heard that before. It might not be in your Bibles. Depending on what translation and what Bible you have, you know, you have the little headings above the sections. Those are the technical term is pericopes. And at the top of the pericopes, you've probably seen the seven trumpets or the sixth trumpet, the seventh. They'll all be outlined, but you don't necessarily see that with the histories. And that is because there is some disagreement about what, you know, how they're laid out and so forth. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this, but I do think it is helpful to see that there is a similar structure. Uh, there's very little variance between what we saw with the seven seals and the seven trumpets in terms of what we would expect, in terms of the pattern and how they're laid out, in terms of having that intermission between the sixth and the seventh of each that we saw with the seals and the trumpets. We see that here as well. And just in terms of the overall uh, structure and outline. And so if you will, turn back in your Bibles to chapter 12. It's probably just the page or two before that so that you can follow along with me. The seven histories 
began in chapter 12 with the woman and the dragon. That's the first one. And as we would expect with the announcement of each in this structure, just as with the seals and the trumpets, the and I saw, we would expect that to start here. We don't have that here, but it's the same thing. It says, and a great sign appeared. Uh, That's just another way of saying, and I saw. In fact, the Greek for appeared and saw in the root form is the same. So the original readers of this in the original language wouldn't have seen the distinction that we do. It's just, you know, writers vary their, their, their wording and their style to accomplish what they want so that it doesn't sound redundant uh, or that we don't become bored. And so here is a different wording, but it says the same thing. So we have that for the first history. The difference comes with the second history because that's what's missing and in a sense throws off uh, a few uh, commentators that would uh, disagree with this view. But for the most part, uh, most see this as the same, and I would agree with those. Uh, many see the second history as beginning in verse 7. And there probably is a division in your Bible. There's a heading. Those were not in the original text. We've added those later. If you have those where it talks about Satan being thrown down, I think it's clear that this is another distinction. There is no and I saw there, and that is what throws some off. Although now war arose could be argued as an indication that something arising now, something arises, that that is indeed the marker that something else is happening. Um, I'll leave that up to you. It really doesn't matter in terms of our understanding of what the symbols mean and represent. I just want you to see the structure. And so I would think this is the seventh history. So as we move on, then the third and fourth histories would be the two beasts. And we see the and I saw is there. The fifth and sixth histories would be the redeemed church in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14. And then the three angelic messengers in chapters, uh, or in verses 6 to 12 of chapter 14. So that leads us up to verse 13. And what we would expect then in between the sixth and seventh would be that intermission. And we see that there in verse 13. We expect in the intermission a word to the church and a word of blessing. And that's exactly what we see. It is a, it's brief, but it is a word to the church. And that's where we see and read that blessing where John writes that those who die in the Lord are blessed. And what a great comfort that would have been to the seven churches in Asia Minor and that is to us today. So that's the background then that brings us up now to verse 14. And the seventh symbolic history. What would we expect this symbolic history to cover? Based on the seven seals and the seven trumpets, we would expect it to describe the end. This is the return of Christ and the final judgment. And that's what we see here. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me briefly state, John uses a cyclical style of parallels to tell the story of the end times. And so it is through these... uh, cycles or parallels, if you want to see it that way, that he gives us insight into what is going to unfold in the end times from different angles. Now, the end times, people often ask, are we in the end times? Yes, we are in the end times. We have been in the end times since Jesus came, technically since he returned, uh, because that was the completion of his earthly work. Uh, but we are in the end times. There's a number of passages that point to this. I think probably the most clear would be Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, where he refers back to Joel, which speaks of the end times. Uh, But we've covered that, and if you have more questions about that, you can see me. But we are in the end times, and so this is what John is telling the story of. So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven histories, 
and coming soon, the seven bowls all tell the story of the age of the church and ultimately the return of Christ and his final judgment, each from a different angle. So then following the intermission, now we move into that. Before we jump in, one more thing about parallels. Parallels are used in Hebrew writing to draw our attention, to add emphasis through repetition, to help us see things that are important. And so we, see, we saw this in Genesis in our last study. We've seen this in our study of Revelation throughout our, our work through this book. Uh, there's another parallel in this passage as well that John is using to draw our attention to what is happening. There are two harvests. There are two sickles. There are two wielders of the sickles. There are two commands to use those sickles. There are two references to the ripe grain and the ripe grapes. And so this parallelism then is used to draw our attention to the finality of this judgment, the completeness of this judgment, that this is the final act of sifting. So look with me now, if you will, in verse 14. John looks and sees what is uh, an easily recognizable symbol, I hope, for all of you. Uh, One like a son of man seated on a white cloud. And that's because we've seen this symbol already. We saw this in the opening chapter of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, where Jesus is described in this way as, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's also a reference back to Daniel 7 in his vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is clearly pointing us to the returning Christ. Additionally, we see on his head a crown. This is the returning king. We need to understand that this is who this is. He is returning in authority uh, as the risen and conquering king. And it is a symbol of victory showing that he has conquered. Later in Revelation 17, we've seen this language of conquering throughout the book, but in Revelation 17, John makes this explicitly clear. They, the people of the beast, will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Along with the crown, the image of Jesus is that he has this sharp sickle. This is the symbol of the harvest, that the time has come. That's the language that we've seen in the other sevenths, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet. For example, the seventh trumpet we read, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name. So time has come to fulfillment. Uh, it's, it's, you see that in the ripening language, right? That, you know, if you've ever had a garden or, you know, worked in farming, you know that you don't want to harvest things before they're ready. At the same time, you don't want things to sit on the vine or, or on the plant too long because what happens after that? They rot, right? So you, you, there's this perfect time of harvest, and that's what the image is that is painted before us. Now, one of the bigger challenges in the passage is that some have a hard time with this idea that King Jesus would receive a command from an angel as is described here. I, I, there's a lot written on this. I just don't really have the issue that a lot of people take with this because I don't think that this 
subordinates Jesus to the angel in any way. Angels are messengers. The angel came from the temple, which is a symbol of coming from the father to the son with the message, the time's here. Go, go bring in the harvest. It wasn't that the, the message of the command made Jesus subordinate to the angel. It was simply that he delivered the message from the father that it's time. And so I don't see that problem, uh, but there are, you know, further explanations of that that you can read on. Uh, there's also a perspective in this idea of harvest that although this is clearly describing the end, right? This is when Jesus returns. This is when he comes back that there will be this harvest. There's also a sense, <clears throat> excuse me, that the harvest is happening now. We are participants in, we are witnesses to the harvest. Jesus described it. There's a harvest that is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so he commands us in the following verse to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, this agricultural imagery that's used by Jesus, it's used throughout Scripture, uh, for us is a little bit more of a challenge because we, our society isn't agrarian anymore. And so if you, haven't, if you didn't grow up on a farm, if you didn't grow up, you know, if you haven't ever gardened or whatever, it's maybe harder to appreciate some of this language. But many of you have, and so you understand and know that farming is one of those things, or even just growing plants, it's one of those things that can be amazingly rewarding when everything goes well. It can be utterly frustrating when the slightest thing goes wrong. Because you work and you work and you work and you work, and then something happens... And it's gone. I think it's helpful to read to you what Richard Phillips says about this agrarian language. He says, We live in a machine age when a coin is put into a slot and a soft drink comes out more or less automatically. We expect salvation to work the same way, and we often arrange our ministries around this quick results expectation. But salvation does not ordinarily work this way. There must be careful plowing and planting as a thoughtful biblical witness is given. Our message must be watered with prayer, often for long seasons. Early signs of growth need to be cultivated, pruned, and fertilized. This is why we should not be surprised when the growth of the church and the Christian nurture of our children require faithful labor labor over an extended period. The great temptation for weary Christians and churches is to give up. But faithful ministry requires patience and endurance in doing God's work in God's way, according to God's word, and by God's sovereign power, all in God's timing. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so the, the, the emphasis then on this agrarian image is that we must keep our shoulder to the plow, that we must not give up, that we know that the harvest is sure, that the harvester is coming back, that he is returning to swing his sickle. Now, the message from the angel includes the details that the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This is verse 15. Again, this idea of not too early, not too late, it's just right in terms of the timing. And so it's a reminder for us not to worry about the Lord's return. We long for the Lord's return, but we don't have to become anxious about the Lord's return. We can pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but we mustn't worry uh, that the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and God needs to come back right now and fix all the problems. You know why? 
Because every generation thinks the same thing. And for the last 2,000 years, every generation has thought, and you can read, I mean, you can read like really old, old stuff where people thought, this is it, this is the end. The world cannot get any worse than it is in this day in 500 A.D. or 1500 A.D. or any time in between then and now. We mustn't worry. And that parable that we read this morning that Zach read for us in Matthew, uh, that describes why we needn't worry. Because he's sovereign over that. He recognizes that the enemy's come and sown the weeds, and the weeds have come up. Don't pull them up, he says to the harvesters. We're going to wait because uh, we don't want to pull those up out. of. But when the time is right, he will return. And then the image at the end, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What a beautiful image. Now, you may not have... Uh, nostalgic imagery of barns. Uh, I do because both of my grandparents were farmers, and so when I was little, before they retired off the farm, I have fond memories of playing in the barn. And so when I read that, it sounds safe. It sounds like home to me. But one day we will be gathered safely into the barn. Only when the grain is ripe, though, will the time for the harvest come. And then we see that that gathering of the barn is exactly what is being described here in Revelation 14. Now, one of the differences that we see in that parable and in what is being described here is that in the parable, Jesus gives the command to his angels to conduct both of the harvests. But in Revelation 14, Jesus is the one pictured. He who sat on the cloud, who swung his sickle across the earth. It is he who is pictured gathering his own unto himself in perfect safety. And then he gives the other, the angel, the charge to bring in those who will face judgment. And this is exactly how John the Baptist described it. When he introduced Jesus' ministry, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, in the scriptures, we see the final judgment described in a variety of ways. We've read those in, this, in that, in that uh, passage where there's chaff and wheat, and you understand the chaff is the part that comes off. It's the part that you don't want to eat, the husk. Uh, We've seen it described as uh, uh, grain and grapes in the passage in Revelation 14. You might think of sheep and goats or other passages that describe it differently. Here, though, it's described as grapes. And this is where the great hymn writer referred, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is a Revelation 14 reference there. But this image that we see in Revelation 14 is rooted in an Old Testament passage, Joel chapter 3, verse 13. Let me read it to you. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see the image of uh, grapes. We see the image of winepresses used. It's often connected to judgment. Uh, We also see grain used as a symbol. What we don't see in in the Old Testament is those two things used together, except for in this passage in Joel 3. And so this has led some to believe that it's a single harvest 
that it's actually a single harvest being repeated in that parallel fashion for, for just for emphasis. I think it's in the parallel fashion not to show a single harvest but a double. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because the double's always implied. Every teaching on the harvest is that by bringing those to salvation, Jesus will judge those who have rejected him. Or likewise, if you think of the the harvest in terms of the judgment of those who have rejected him, it is implied the salvation of those who are his. So I don't see that really as problematic. The more important thing to see here is that the righteous justice of God is demonstrated in his coming judgment. This judgment demonstrates his righteous justice. Hear me when I say that if you are in Christ, he has taken the judgment on himself and you are safe. So when you read this horrible stuff, you need to be reminded that Jesus took that on himself for you. Now, if you have not trusted Christ, if you are not believing him, you will face that judgment yourself. It is the just judgment of God against sin. No one escapes that judgment, so to speak. But for us who are in Christ, Christ took it for us. He faced the judgment for us so that we don't have to face it. But if you are not trusting Christ, you will face that judgment yourself. That judgment is portrayed graphically in verse 20 with more blood than we can even imagine. And the point of it is to show the grand and final scale of the judgment that is to come. It will be complete. It is the final judgment. The reference of 1,600 stadia is a little bit troubling, uh, simply because we haven't seen that number before. Where does it come from? Two main views. One, 1,600 stadia is about 180 miles in the land of Israel. Depending on the time uh, when you look at it, is roughly 200 miles. And so people uh, attribute this as judgment to the land of Israel. Um, This is problematic when we understand the parallel structure that John uses because the judgment is not limited to the land of Israel. The judgment is to the whole world. And so I think the other view makes more sense. And that is the number four is the number of earth. We think of the four corners of the earth or the four winds of the earth. We think of the four points of the compass. That's where that reference comes from. And so four squared multiplied by a thousand is where you get the 1600 stadia. The idea that it's the complete earth. That's the picture of four squared. Like there's not a place on earth that you can hide. There's nowhere that you can run. It is the all over the earth, the complete earth will be judged. All of humanity will be judged. The thousand is there just for emphasis, so to speak. It's the multitude. It's the, you, you can't imagine the judgment. It will be complete. No one will escape the, judge, the just judgment of God. That's the picture that is being described here. Notice also that the final judgment takes place outside the city, indicating that there is a separation between the people of God and those who are his enemies. Now, it might be easy for us to look at this passage and other passages in Revelation and ask the question, how is this loving? We've asked this question before. How is such a grotesque judgment a picture of the work of a loving God? And I will agree that the description of the blood is a bit much. It's hard to read. It would earn an R rating if we were to make this into a movie. You wouldn't let children see this. But hear me when I say that this does not describe a horrible and unloving God. This describes the horror of our sin. This describes the horror of our sin. 
Now, that's not something that we like to think about, but frankly, it is something that we should consider. How ugly our sin is. For the unbeliever to know what you need to be saved from. Your sin isn't just small oversights, little infractions. You have sinned and I have sinned against a holy God. For the believer, it is to know what we have been saved from and to realize the great cost of our Savior's death and His work of redemption. Listen to the words of Isaiah. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice and there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Because our sin is horrible, judgment is horrible. That is what is being portrayed in Revelation 14. But you know, we can't stop there. We can't stop there because we know that our sin has been dealt with. Because Christ has taken that horrible judgment upon Himself, we have been saved from this wrath to come. It is by His blood that our sins have been conquered. It is by His blood that we have been healed from our greatest disease. It is the blood of the Lamb that has taken away all our sins, borne all of our griefs, and carried all of our sorrows. His blood flowed for our iniquities and brought us peace. You see, we should shudder when we read about all of the blood because our sin is horrific. But we must take our eyes to Christ in faith and see that His blood is greater. It was the will of the Lord to crush him that we might be accounted as righteous. It is by his blood which we are justified. His blood has ushered in the new covenant. His blood has reconciled us to God and made peace. And his blood that we have been washed clean from all of our sins. The blood of God's judgment in Revelation 14 should rattle us to the point that we see our need for the blood of the Lamb to cleanse us. We need to be washed. 
For you who have yet to believe, today is the day to trust in the one who shed his blood so that you would not have to face that judgment. So that your blood would not be shed. By faith in him, you can be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. By trusting him, you can avoid dying out the city, outside of the city, because Jesus died outside of Jerusalem for you. His blood flowed to be the double cure for sin, cleansing you from its guilt and power. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross of Jesus can we cling. For those of you who are believers in Christ today, find hope and help for your life in this truth. That all your guilty stains have been washed away forever. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from your account. So that by his blood you may now enter into the holy place. He has dressed your nakedness. He has cleansed your foulness. He is the cleft in the rock in which you can hide. He is your only hope in life and death. You and I have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, would you bring these truths home to our hearts and encourage and comfort us. I do pray that if there is anyone here who has yet to believe, that they would hear the wonderful hope of redemption in the cleansing blood of Christ today. To know that Christ took upon Him the judgment that we all deserve so that we can be forgiven. Would you draw those people to yourself? And Lord, for us who are in Christ, I pray that these words would give great comfort and hope and strength in this life to know that our sins have been washed away, that we have been cleansed, that we have been now credited with Christ's righteousness, and we can now enter into the holy place and stand before you, our holy God, bringing our petitions and our thanksgiving before you with boldness. Would you help us to realize what a great privilege that is? May we not ever take for granted our great salvation. So refresh this in our hearts today, we pray. And strengthen us for the journey onward. In Jesus' name, amen.